different message than, uh, than what I normally preach, but uh, I think it'll be a, a help to us here this evening. Before we get into the Word of God here, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into the message here. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for all you've done in our lives. Lord, I pray that you um, be with the preaching here of your Word. I pray that I say only what you would have me to say, that you fill me with your Spirit. Lord, I pray that your word go out in a, in a great way and touch the hearts and lives that are here and meet the needs that are present, especially if there's a need of salvation here in this room. Lord, I pray that your spirit draw that lost soul to, to you and that he um, yield and that today be the day of salvation for him. Lord, we'll give you all the honor and praise for all that occurs. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read three verses, and then we're going to ju- jump over to Romans chapter 14, um, and we're going to be jumping back and forth between these two chapters primarily throughout the message. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, Yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Let's flip back to Romans 14. And we'll just read one verse here. Verse 13. Romans 14, verse 13. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another any more. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So these two chapters uh, that we've read out of, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14, deal primarily with the same issue. This is two parallel passages where Paul is dealing with the same issue of whether a Christian should eat meats offered unto idols. Uh, matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, he actually will take three chapters to fully develop his thoughts on it. And we're, we're going to look a little bit, of course, some of the verses that he, that he writes um, concerning this. But, of course, this is not a topic we face today. I've never come up and asked me if it was okay for them to eat something offered unto an idol. Um, so the, the, this question isn't here, but the, the underlying principle we do face on a daily basis um, is that our actions can cause other Christians to stumble. And that's what Paul is driving at here, and basically you'll see some of his, um, some of his conclusion as we go through it. But it's something we need to keep in mind is that our actions may cause other people to stumble or to fall. In 1 Corinthians, you saw that charity or love is crucial in this issue because as 1 Corinthians 8 says, uh, that it, love, charity, is what will edify. And that word edify, uh, directly translated, means to be a house builder, to confirm, to, to uh, you, can, you just picture in your mind, edifying this, building a house, you're helping somebody um, build their life, their, their Christian faith. But in Romans chapter 14, the verse we read, we are told that if we're not careful, we can put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in a fellow believer's way. Now, this word stumbling block means a stub or an occasion 
to apostasy. That's the implication that is driving it here. The occasion to fall is just one Greek word, and it means a trap stick or a snare. So you can see the direction Paul is driving at here, as he's saying, if we're not careful, our actions can ensnare a fellow believer and arrest their progress, arrest their walk with God. You just think of, if you get caught in a snare, you're not going very far. You are, you're stopping right there. You can't go very far. And our actions can cause someone else to be ensnared to where they cannot progress in their Christian walk. So, what this, the point of this message will be is how to ensure that we are edifying others rather than ensnaring them by our actions. So are we edifying or are we ensnaring other people? So we'll have four, four points here that we'll look at um, to, that can help us uh, make sure that we are edifying rather than ensnaring. The first one will be we must have self-examination in place in our life. The verse we read here in Romans 14, verse 13, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no one put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, the judging this rather, that phrase there, judge this rather, means we should make the determination in our life. This is a, I'm going to determine that I am not going to lay a stumbling block in front of a fellow believer. And with that phrase is also the implication that instead of judging others' actions, we should judge ourselves. We should do some self-examination. It will be crucial in this issue. Now, Critiquing others or judging others is very easy because our eyes point outward. They don't point inward, they point outward. We see very clearly the faults of other people. So we need assistance if we are going to critique ourselves. We need a mirror or we need a companion, someone else that can tell us, hey, you got food on your face or, or something like that. You, you know, your, your hair is a mess. We need assistance if we are going to critique ourselves, to examine ourselves, a mirror or a companion. And, of course, God has provided us with both. He has given us a mirror, of course, the Word of God, and He has given us a companion. So let's look at the mirror. Let's look to James chapter 1. When we are doing self-examination, we must, of course, bring in the Word of God. James chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 23. It says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So just as a mirror will show us our physical flaws, we look in a mirror to say, okay, is my hair okay? Um, just like we do that, just like a mirror shows our physical flaws, the Bible will show our spiritual faults. So we must look into the perfect law of liberty as it is uh, described here in the book of James. Now, the good thing about the Bible, unlike a mirror, is not only does it show us faults, but it also tells us how to fix it. 
The Bible, throughout the Word of God here, we have instruction on how to fix the faults that we see or that we, um, that we notice when we are reading the Word of God. Throughout the Bible, we see the, that the way of God is contrasted with the way of sin or the natural way. As you saw here in verse 23, he beholds his natural face in a glass. So that's our natural state. We look into the Word of God and God says, there's some flaws. There's some faults here. In your natural state. This is the, the natural state of man is a sinful state. Um, of course, even after salvation, we understand we still need the word, the, uh, the God's power to be able to live a godly life. So we can go to the word of God, but then we have the choice. Are we going to change? Is there going to be a before and after picture? You should not leave the word of God looking the same as how you approached it. It should always have an impact on your life. It will show you what you need to change, and you should apply it and change it. There should be a before and after picture when you look into the mirror of God's Word. So do we change what the mirror is showing us we need to change? Or do we, as the, uh, the forgetter, the, the hearer of the Word, but not a doer, he just looks in the mirror of God, into the mirror of God's Word and says, oh yeah, huh, oh well. And it just goes his way and doesn't ever apply the word of God to his life. But if we want God's blessing, as it said, the one who continues therein, continues in the word of God, the Bible says we'll be blessed in his deed. So if, if we're going to notice our flaws and have some self-examination in place, we must go to the word of God and we must let the word of God change us. We must apply it to our lives. So that is the mirror that God has given to us to help us with our self-examination. But we also, of course, have been given the Holy Ghost. Let's turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 26. John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now we have been given the mirror of God's word, but we cannot physically remain in front of a mirror. Just like, you know, we can't physically remain in front of a mirror constantly throughout our life. Um, if you do, people will start looking at you a little funny. Uh, a little narcissist, maybe thinking you're a narcissist or something like that. But we can't physically remain with the Word of God in front of us throughout 24-7. We, we just can't do it. The things we have to do in our life and, and even to do God's work, we'll have to sometimes put the Bible down and actually you know, go out and apply God's Word by, uh, by doing His service. So we cannot physically have the Word of God in place, have the mirror in place 24-7 in our lives. So that's why, one of the reasons God has given to us the Holy Ghost, the companion. Um, one of the great benefits of, of having, having a wife is that she'll let you know, hey, there's, there's, you know, you're not looking quite right here. You know, your collar's turned up or, you know, you got food. You know, it's great having a companion along that can say, hey, there's something wrong here and you need to fix it. And that's exactly what the Holy Ghost does. He tells us, number one, how we ought to behave. He'll, he'll lead us into the right way. But he'll also let us know when we have transgressed, when we have done something 
wrong. He is our companion given by God for that purpose. We see here in John chapter 14, 26, that he is going to bring all things to, remember, to our remembrance, the word of God. So he's going to remind us of the, the word of God, of what we have read, of, of what we looked in the mirror, and he said, remember, remember that? And it will be a great, a great help to us. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Of course, the fruit of the Spirit given to us here in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So we have this list of attributes, of course, that should be in the lives of the Christians. Those who are living in the Spirit will have these attributes. They'll not just have one. They'll have them all. The ones that are, if we are living in the Spirit. And it is amazing that as Paul is driving home this point to the Galatians, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And then what does he go to immediately? It's interactions with others. It's how we are going to interact with others. The Holy Ghost is going to be very key. The, a lot of the, uh, fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit that we, that we read have to do with our interactions with others. So we are given a companion by God to show us the right way we are supposed to interact with others. Also, but of course, shows us the self-examination. You didn't show enough temperance here. You didn't show enough long-suffering. You were quick to anger. You weren't showing love. So the Holy Ghost has been given to us as that companion to not only, of course, show us the right way to go, but also tell us when we have gone astray. If we are not living and walking in the Spirit, then we are almost certainly laying a stumbling block before someone else because we're walking in the flesh. You're either walking in the flesh or you're walking in the Spirit you're walking in the flesh, I can guarantee you, you're going to be laying some stumbling blocks for your fellow believers. So it's very key in the self-examination to remember the Holy Ghost and to walk in the Spirit. So we have to have self-examination in place if we are going to edify rather than ensnare. But we also have to, then we have to demonstrate selfless behavior. Let's turn to Romans 14, back to Romans 14. We'll read verse 15 this time. Romans 14, verse 15. It says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll read verse 13. Driving at the same point, Paul is trying to instill in the believers of both these churches the importance of selfless behavior. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, and he's going to use himself as an example here. It says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother 
to offend. So Paul is trying to instill, again, the selflessness in the believers. And what does he do? He keys in on our motivation. As he said, if you're eating meat and you're grieving your brother and you just... You don't really care. You're not walking charitably. Getting back to love. Getting back to the love of God and how we should interact with others through love. Of course, we read 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, how charity is going to be what edifieth. So what is the motivation for our actions? Do we just act in our own way with little concern about how it could affect others? Like, I'm just going to do, and I'll just, I'm just doing my own, my own thing, you know. We need to think about our actions. When we're around the lost, when we're around believers, we must consider how our actions might affect them, how they might be perceived by others. We must make sure that our, we are acting in love. But also, of course, what should be the primary motivation for our actions? We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 31 and 30 through 33, we'll, we'll read this. This is when Paul is really wrapping up this issue with the Corinthians here. Again, started in 1 Corinthians 8. He's going to finish it here at the end of chapter 10, verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So the, the motivation for our actions, we find in verse 31, that we are supposed to do all to the glory of God. Trying to glorify God with our actions. When you stop and think about that before you act, it's going to change how you act. If you stop and think and say, okay, how is this action is this action going to be, bring glory to God or not? It will change how we act. Because there's a spoiler alert I have for you. God is not glorified by us finding ways that other people could improve their walk with God. That does not bring glorification to God. Examining someone else's life. And saying, oh, they need to, if they, if they just read their Bible more, if they, if they served God a little bit better, um, they could improve their walk with God. That is not glorifying to God. And it's certainly not walking in love. God is glorified when our behavior is based out of a love for Him and a love for others. Because it is that behavior that will not lay down a snare of offense. If we are acting in love with a desire to glorify God, we will not be laying down those stairs of offense. I understand if people are looking for a reason to be offended, they'll find a reason. But we're not actively laying down stumbling blocks for them. You should make somebody work to get offended. Obviously, I'm not even going to go there. But so what, what, is our, what is motivating our behavior? Is it a, do we have that selfless behavior in place where, we're, where our motivation is to glorify God and the love of God is what influences our actions? This is what is required if we are going to have edifying behavior. It must be selfless behavior. If we're acting selfishly, it's just laying snares for others. 
Which brings us to our third point, is what are some of the snares that we find today? In Paul's day, you had the issue of eating meat offered to idols, or as is touched on in the book of Romans, esteeming one day above another. So you had these contentions that were taking place, and it was laying snares and stumbling blocks in the church. And that's, of course, what Paul was addressing with both churches. Again, we don't quite have those same debates today, but there are still things that can be in our life that can be a snare, that will be a snare to others. And the first one is a critical spirit. Now, I am sure no one in our church has a critical spirit. I, I talked to pastor, he guaranteed me of that uh, before he left. No, of course, of course not. But this is, a critical spirit is something that is extremely dangerous. It, it not only damages others, but it damages the one who has it. We can think of uh, the book of Psalm, chapter 1, and verse 1, where it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And that, those scorners have that critical spirit. And you see them mentioned in, in the book of Proverbs as well. It's only a matter of time. When a critical spirit is in place, it is only a matter of time before it starts to lay down snares and causes, causing someone else to stumble. To be completely arrested in their walk with God. It's only a matter of time. Critical spirit is something that is extremely, extremely dangerous. Many are offended and leave church because a church member had a critical spirit. And others, while they may remain in church, will be spiritually paralyzed. Because they cannot move forward because... They've been snared, they've been uh, made to cause to stumble by this critical spirit. And it can manifest itself by attitude, by actions, by words. This critical spirit can be so deadly, not only to the one who has it, but also to those who are, who are around it. So we need to determine this will not be in our life. Back to Romans chapter 14, 13, when I said... Judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. Determine you will not let a critical spirit take hold in your life. A lot of times we let sin come in and we're like, well, I can handle it. It's just going to affect me. But it doesn't. Sin of any kind will always affect more than the person who is sinning. And especially when you get to something like a critical spirit, it will damage greatly those that it is around. So a critical spirit. Is, something, is a snare that we will see sometimes in today's churches. Second thing is pride. Pride is another snare. And this, of course, oftentimes will go hand in hand with the critical spirit. But, of course, pride we know was present in the Corinthian church. Paul addressed that on several different occasions. It's present in Anchorage as well. It's present in Independent Baptist Church of Anchorage. Pride will be present whenever, wherever there's a person, there's going to be pride. And again, whenever you start thinking that you're the smartest man in the room, you've already been snared by pride yourself, and soon your pride will begin to lay snares around you that will cause others to stumble. Pride invariably brings self-deceit. And when pride is busy puffing up itself and putting down others, those who you are around will clearly see the faults that you have, and will rightly judge you as a hypocrite. 
And I don't know if there's anything in, church, anything in a church that drives people away faster than hypocrisy. There is the old saying that, you know, if, if, a, if, if a hypocrite's causing you to, to uh, not be in church, then, he, the, then the hypocrite's closer to God than you are. I'm not exactly sure that's true. Because just because you're in church doesn't mean you're close to God. Um, but hypocrisy can just drive people away so quickly. And where does hypocrisy come from? Oftentimes you can just trace it right back to pride. Again, pride just affects every area of our life. But here, as we think about the snares that we could, that could be in our life that we are laying out for others unintentionally. And that's where it gets back to why self-examination is so important. A constant self-examination to make sure that these snares have not come into your life and you haven't been laying out snares for others. The third snare that we'll look at is enforcing God's holiness. And this can be a snare in our lives. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. This is in the middle of Hezekiah's great revival. Um, he, he, he ascends the throne, and within first year, he instantly starts reinstituting uh, worship of, of the one true God. Um, the king before him, wicked king, his, his father was a wicked king. Uh, Hezekiah ascends the throne, instantly starts turning the nation back to God. And so he, um, they decide they're going to hold the Passover. And uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with this time frame of Israel's history, there is a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern Israel, uh, kingdom of Israel, um, I'm not quite sure on my timelines, they have either just been taken captivity or they're about to get taken into captivity. But they've been living a, god, a godless um, they've been a godless kingdom for hundreds of years. Um, Baal worship, worship of all these other gods, that's the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Well, Hezekiah, when they decide they're going to celebrate this big Passover, they send people into the northern kingdom saying, hey, why don't you come partake of the Passover with us? And so some of them decide to. These are people who have not been close to God their entire lives. Never, never stepped foot in the temple. Um, nothing, nothing like that. But they decided to come down and partake of the Passover here with the kingdom of Judah, which was a southern kingdom who had good and bad times, times that they were serving God and times they were not. So we're going to read Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 17. It was where we'll start. It says, For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, these would be the ones from the northern kingdom, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord, pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. Hezekiah could have condemned those who were partaking of the Passover against the law of Moses, contrary to the law of Moses. You had to be ceremonially clean to be able to partake of the Passover. 
And here you have these, these ones from the northern kingdom coming down, and they are not ceremonially clean. And Hezekiah could have said, no, you cannot partake of this Passover. You cannot partake of this worship of God with us. You have not met the requirements of God's holiness. And he would be, according to the law of Moses, he would be right. They could not, according to the law, partake of the Passover. It would be a transgression for them. But he does not seek to enforce God's ho- the, the symbol of God's holiness, the, uh, the ceremonial law. He does not seek to enforce that on them. Instead, he prays for them. He says, good Lord, pardon everyone that prepareth his heart. They are seeking God the best they know how. And he was not going to judge them because they, sh- they showed up and they were ceremonially unclean. He said, if they have prepared their heart, if they're seeking God the best they know how, I'm going to pray for them. Now this point for us pertains especially to unbelievers. Uh, with our, our interactions with unbelievers or with newborn Christians or with prodigal Christians. Don't try to enforce God's standard for a holy life on someone else. Especially if they are seeking God the best they know how. In verse 11, mentioning the ones who are coming down from the northern kingdom of Israel, it said that they humbled themselves. They were seeking God. They were humbling themselves that they were going to go and and partake of that Passover. Even though they didn't quite know how to do it, they were going to do it the best they could. And for us, we have people walk through our doors that are not in, in our terminology, they're not like us. They're not ceremonially clean. But it is not our business to enforce God's holiness on their life. This is very prevalent in many fundamental Baptist churches, and it is very wrong. We need to leave it to the teaching and the preaching of God's word to produce that holy life. To produce that holiness in their life. I know of several, just in my limited time in the ministry, that have been driven from church by this overzealous enforcing of God's holiness. And I can only imagine how many a pastor who has been in the ministry for years knows of. This is not glorifying to God, enforcing God's holiness. That's not our business. And I am, I'm talking on a strictly individual level. There are aspects of God's holiness that I will enforce in my home. I am the head of my home, and I have a, a duty, a responsibility before God to raise, it up, raise my children in the way that they should go. I will enforce certain aspects of God's holiness in my home. The church, the administration of the church has certain aspects of, of holiness, of godly standards that must be followed. But on an individual basis, as we interact with people who, especially the ones who come and walk through our doors visiting, don't enforce God's holiness on their life. It's a snare that can quickly cause them to stumble, oftentimes running away from church and say, I'll never have anything to do with God. Let's be like Hezekiah in this situation. Pray for them. Imagine that. Don't try to enforce God's holiness on someone else. Pray for them. 
And this brings us to the seriousness of this issue. Our final point here this evening. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 12 now. First Corinthians eight verse twelve. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. This is not just a oh they should have been stronger spiritually. They should be able to take it. And the Bible says when you sin against them, despite their weak conscience, that's not that's between them and God. But when you have caused the offense, you're sinning against Christ. A breach in this issue is a direct sin against our Savior. That is how critical this issue is. A Christian who does not consider how his actions are affecting others will have a rude awakening at the judgment seat of Christ. We see that in Romans 14. We'll read a few verses here. Again, we're jumping back and forth between these two chapters. Romans 14. I'll read verses 10 through 12. It says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. If we do not consider how our, affection, how our actions are affecting others, We will be judged by God if we have caused a fellow believer to fail, to fall. We cannot be cavalier about this. We cannot just brush it off. We cannot just go about our our way, our life, with no concern for others, or how our actions are affecting others, and be pleasing to God at the same time. It's impossible. We're laying out those snares, and someone's going to step into them. Someone is going to fall. And when that happens, we're sinning against Christ. But thinking about the judgment seat of Christ, we can, by acting in love, with a desire to glorify God, we can strengthen and build up others by our actions. And there will be rewards in heaven For those who do so. Those who did strengthen the brethren. God will reward for that. But are we edifying? Are we building up? Or are we ensnaring? Do we even think about how our actions could be perceived by others? In order to protect our actions against becoming a snare... We need to maintain Christ's glorification as the motive for our actions and his love as the presiding influence on our actions. We need to do that self-examination to make sure there's nothing in place in our life that would hinder a fellow believer in their walk with God. Make sure we are not laying out those snares. Instead, let us edify. Let us be a house builder. Are you edifying tonight or are you ensnaring others. Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes, go into an invitation time.